Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. In this episode, Murphy and Mohammed Akbarpour, a Becker Friedman Institute research fellow, examine the opportunities that surround the development of an international kidney exchange market, the obstacles that inhibit that market from being implemented, and the experience of being an early career scholar at the University of Chicago. I'd like to welcome a very special guest today, Mohammed Akbarpour. Did I did I get that correct? Yes, yes, it's almost correct. Almost correct. Well, you told me about 30 seconds ago how to say yeah. it, so I'm not sure I can do it a minute from now, but I did my best. Anyway, you're one of the research fellows that we have here at the Becker Friedman Institute. We're a program where we try to bring some of the outstanding scholars in the profession to Chicago. Thank you. Don't require them to teach, allow them to do their research. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your background, a little bit about your research, a little bit about your view on economics generally, your view on Chicago. So we've got a lot of stuff to cover. And, but welcome, and uh, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background. You know, how'd you, how'd you end up here? Sure, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here and, uh, in the Baker Friedman Institute. Uh, I, I came from Iran, I mean, to America, and I, I came to Stanford for my PhD. I was an engineer at the beginning. I was in the management science and engineering department at Stanford. Then I switched to economics because I found economics more appealing and more useful than my previous... We'll come back to that, because I want to know what, what caused you to sure. convert. Uh, but now I'm an economist as engineer. Uh, market designers call themselves economists and as engineers. But I, I was at Stanford. I worked with Paul Milgram and Al Roth on market design, in particular kidney exchange and school choice systems. And I came to Baker Friedman Institute last year uh, as a research fellow. So I was in the job market last year. I, I, I came to Baker Friedman and it has been great so far. So that's a quick review okay. if I have to explore, expand something. No, no, no problem. Let, let's go back to a couple of things you said. One sure. is you use the term market design. Yeah. And why don't you explain for me and the audience a little bit about what market design is about and how you would think about market design. Sure. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to define market design in, in, in 30 seconds, but uh, the, the, the best definition that I like about market design or the way I think about market design is reverse game theory. So in the past three decades in economics, we, we've worked a lot on game theory, and game theory helps us understand how institutions affect behavior. Now that we understand how institutions affect behavior much more than, I mean, half a century before, half a century ago, now we are trying to design institutions of the marketplaces in order to achieve specific uh, behavior, in order to, to achieve a specific outcome that we are looking for. And that's basically what market designers are trying to do. Uh, you can, I mean, look at the examples of this, uh, the, the success examples of market design. For example, we, we, we are auctioning off spectrums every year in the United States of America. And that's a market with billions of dollars of transactions. So what we do is that we design the rules of that auction in such a way that we achieve a specific outcome. We don't want Verizon common being all, all, the, all, the, all, the, all, the, 
all the spectrum. We want to have multiple winners. We want to have some small companies being able to come and enter this market because that's a market with a huge fixed cost. So in order to achieve that specific outcome, which we call socially efficient, whatever that means in that specific context, we design market institutions in such a way that we achieve that. So that's what market design uh, is supposed to do. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you're now thinking uh, this is what economics is supposed to do. So, so in that sense, uh, I agree that market design's philosophy actually is for probably 100 years ago. It goes back to Hayek. Okay, let me, let me pick up on a couple of things you said. And, and how, you talked about sort of game theory as sort of starting kind of in the other way, kind of call it the forward direction if market design is the reverse yeah. direction. In other words, you start with a situation and you use game theory to predict how people will behave in that situation. In particular, what we'd call an equilibrium outcome, where multiple people say are playing the game, what's the ultimate outcome going to be? Uh, now, the predictions of game theory sometimes seem to fit the world, sometimes they don't. And in order to think market design is going to be successful, you would think we'd have to take that into account. And to what extent does market design actually try to say, well, these seem to be the robust predictions of game theory, things that we can rely on, versus things that maybe don't seem to fit the data quite so well? Yeah. You know, and, and you think that's an important thing to bring into market design. That is empirical evidence about how well game theory works in general to describe how people will act and respond to your market design. Yeah, that's actually a great. I mean, that's a great point. So the one, the fir my first answer is that market design and game theory both are work in progress. So we are trying to actually understand more. But a couple of points about market design or those markets that I've been involved in thinking about or I've seen my classmates or my advisors, my previous advisors working on, is that the first one is that many markets that uh, we design these days, they are online and they are on internet. So it's Google advertising mechanism, it's, I mean, eBay, it's Uber, it's Airbnb. And in these markets, the, the, the central planner has actually so much power on imposing rules if it's so much detail to achieve a very specific behavior. And in addition to that, we have so much data in Airbnb that we can predict or we can actually, we can predict the behavior of people much better than before. So that helps a lot. The other point is that uh, this issue, which is a very important issue that you, you actually discussed now, is one reason that we are now more and more uh, convinced that we have to work on simple mechanisms, simple market design. Because we know it's so hard for participants to understand some mechanisms to play equilibrium. Now we have to actually uh, go towards uh, designing simple mechanisms, mechanisms that are easy to understand. And we have, some, we have, we have for example, the new FCC auction, which is going to be uh, in March this year. Uh, that, that, that auction, one of the main goals was to design a mechanism which is very simple to understand for local broadcast, broadcasters. So, so in that sense, that's, that's also a new agenda in uh, market design in which we are trying to under design simple mechanisms. Let me give you an example. So in some game situations, I really have to understand how all the other participants are going to behave yeah. in order to know what my optimal strategy is going to be. That is. I, there's what, not, I think, what they call in game theory a dominant strategy. Yeah. That if, if I have a dominant strategy game in which that dominant strategy is very obvious, 
It is. I don't care what you do. Yeah. The right thing for me to do is to do X. Seems to me that's a much more robust market design than a world where yeah. I got to understand how umpteen million people are going to play, and if they play that way, then and I what's the distribution people. of their values and everything like that? Yeah, exactly. That's that's a that's a great point. I want to go one step further. Even if you have a dominant strategy, then we have so much evidence that. Uh, people do not play the equilibrium because understanding that something is your dominant strategy is also not very easy. Think about I'm gonna. In be some cases, some cases it's easy. Exactly. So think about I, I'm gonna be a little bit technical, but think about second price auction. So your dominant strategy is to be truthful. Tell me how much you value this object. But it's not as easy as uh, an ascending price auction in which I increase the price and I tell you that. Whenever the price is higher than your value, you can just stop, and then I'm going to give the object to the person who didn't stop, the last person. Now, let me, let me, let me pick up on that. Let's say within ascending price auctions. These, now, ascending price auction is an auction where we start with a low price, yeah. and we keep going up until we're left with one bidder, and then he yeah, wins. Exactly. So there's many ways you could have an ascending price auction. So you could have one in which you have to raise your hand and bid, yeah. for example, versus one where... You have your hand on a finger on a button and you take your finger off the button whenever you want. Whenever you want. Do you think one of those would be better? And what, what would your market design yeah. understanding tell you about the button method yeah. versus I got to say something? So uh, the, the ascending auction that I was, I was, I was having in my mind was, was this button, what button one that you have your, your hand on a button and whenever you want, you don't want to buy. But that's not the one that most yeah. people would think of, right? Most people, when they think of an ascending price auction, do I have 10, do I have 10, do I have 10, yeah. do I have 11? You know, I got 11 and so you... So I think these two games are basically both, in both of them you have an obvious strategy, which is that suppose you like this, this spectrum for a billion dollar. Then I say, is there anyone who is willing to pay, I mean, $500 million, you raise your hand. Anyone, $600 million, you raise your hand. And I go up to $1 billion, you raise your hand, and once I go to 110 or a billion and uh, I mean, a billion, $100 million, then you're going to say no. So in that sense, you have an obvious, I mean, a strategy, which is that you just continue up to your value. This is actually one of the job market papers of uh, one of the candidates, my co-author, which he calls obviously a strategy-proof mechanisms, that if there is a, there is a mechanism which is obvious for you in, in, in one well-defined sense, then we prefer that mechanism to, to, to something which is not obvious. And that's actually very important in, in real-world marketplaces. So we, 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 we cannot easily tell people that this auction, this mechanism is truthful. You have to bid your value because people necessarily uh, do not trust the auctioneer, which I think they have the right to because sometimes, I mean, we, we can't easily trust auctioneers. Now, would it matter to you in this kind of a world what, where there are people can see my finger on the button? Give you an example. Let's say there are multiple auctions yeah. that are going to follow each other. And I have exactly. a, my finger on a button in an auction. I don't think I'm going to win. Might I take my finger off to say, well, these things aren't worth nearly as much as I thought they were. So what would your, if, if I'm an auction designer, should I 
hide the buttons and say everybody's got a secret button they can touch yeah. or should I make it so everybody can see the button? Yeah, this is a, these, these are all great theoretical questions. So one area of market design that we understand very little is dynamic auctions. So we, we, don't, we don't have that many benchmark models. Uh, I mean, Myerson's optimal auction for dynamic auctions or Milgram Weber for dynamic auctions. So we know very little, and we know that we know two things. We know some environments in which information revelation maximizes efficiency, maximizes revenue, and we know some other environments in which information revelation actually does not do that. Uh, and that depends on uh, very technical assumptions. You know, I mean, in economics paper, we have all these technical assumptions. If values of different bidders are positively correlated or negatively correlated, so that completely depends on the specific environment. And that's actually a key issue about market design, that you have some responsibility for the details of your design. So it's not that we write a theory model and then that's a market design paper. For market design, you actually can, you should go to the marketplace, design something that works, and create some, some reasonable uh, fraction of the efficient board that you could live in. So, so in that sense, uh, I can't answer your question generally. We should, we should just go to the spectrum market and see which one is better, go to the school choice market, we see which one is better. So that's, that's market dependent. So I guess you would say market design then would intersect with another aspect of what's been a growing field in economics, which is kind of experiments or big data that is yep. actually out there looking at real world experience. Yeah, exactly. So now there's a back and forth here. I design a market. I run it out there, I see how it works. Maybe I tweak some things to yep. see how those tweaks affect A-B testing in some sense. Yeah, that's exactly true. Market design is in some sense uh, an intersection of mechanism design, experimental economics, and now machine learning. So machine learning is a new field that has, I mean, entered market design. My research is also an intersection of computer science and, market, and economics in some sense. So we, we use all those tools. I mean, I don't do experiments, but there are so many market designers who do experiments to understand how something works or run a simple, I mean, toy uh, market design on part of the market and then, I mean, expand it to the whole market. So that's, that's definitely true. There are different tools that you, that you have to exploit in order to. That's why I called market designers economists as engineers because uh, there's the science of it's just like building an airplane. The science is physics, electromagnetics, Newtonian physics. But those who build airplanes are engineers. In economics, we know we have game theorists. We have theorists. We have uh, macroeconomists. Everyone who, who helps us understand the rules of the, the science of economics. And then we have market designers who go and build something. And examples are these markets that we see, spectrum auctions, kidney exchange, school choice. Uh, college admissions and so on and so forth. What's the acceptance of this methodology been among private sector uh, participants? That is, I mean, it seems like people like Google and people like that are big yeah. consumers of this of the market designs idea. Yeah. How about outside the internet space? Does this seem to be outside the internet space? Yeah. yeah, outside the internet yeah, space. Does that seem to yes, be catching on there as well? Uh, it's, 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 it's getting much better. Markets are connected. That's one lesson of market design. So the spectrum market is outside the internet, but it's, it's very much connected to the internet market because who gets the spectrum determines how the internet market is going to work. So the school choice systems uh, are, are the New York City school choice, Boston school choice, San Francisco school choice. 
market designers have been successful in designing markets for those places. That's one example of outside internet. National residency matching program, you know, that's probably the first big success of market design. And kidney exchange is, is another example of outside internet space market design that we have. Uh, now, that we have. One experience I have with people who do a lot of market design is they often try to do market designs that don't bring in money, don't bring in prices, yeah. try to like, how do I allocate goods when I don't yeah. use prices? And what we would normally think about the classic market design, which is, let's just have a, let's have a market. You know, if I want to sell my house, I put my yeah. house on the, I don't, I don't design yeah. some yeah. new market, I put my house on the, in the usual house market and I see how it does and maybe I adjust the price, maybe I have a real estate agent, maybe I do it myself. How do you see those two interacting? The sort yeah. of traditional, I don't know, market non-design and market yeah. design. So I agree. Historically, in the past 20 years, the main success stories that you hear from market design are from markets in which prices basically do not play any role or very they are not as important. Matching markets, if you like. Kidney, schools, national residency. But, but, but let's say national residency. You know, Which one, the, 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 the medical residency yes. one. Why do we why do we call why do we have a market design problem there as opposed to a market? Like when we yeah. want to allocate houses to people, we don't have a market design mechanism that allocates who lives in what house or so, so who that, has what that job. Yeah, exactly. So that's a specific marketplace. So I I I I I don't think I'm disagreeing with you. I'm but I'm gonna challenge in the sense that wherever we have a market, we have market design. So as Hayek said, the whole difference is in deliberately creating institutions in which market works as opposed to passively accepting institutions as they are. So wherever you have a market, you have market design. Sometimes you have a market in which money plays, money clears the market, sometimes no. So in, in that specific case of national residency matching program, the one constraint is that salaries and wages are fixed. I agree, we can think about it. <laughs> Why is that a constraint? Uh, that's, that's a rule. Is that how we allocate that's, junior that's, faculty members in economics? Exactly. We could. We yeah. could have a cartel no, no. and it's a constraint agree we're going to pay everybody $50,000 instead of market wages. Yeah. And then we'd have a real allocation problem. But we, do, but, but we do have it in the PhD program. Yes. Yeah, so even we economists uh, decided collectively that we do want to have fixed wages for PhD students. Well, I don't know if we have fixed wages. There's different people here get different... Uh, Stipends. Some people get. Some people it's, get tuition. Yeah, a, some people don't. Some exactly. People, it's a. It's a. But you have a couple of options basically. No tuition, tuition, and stipend. But I agree. At least in many universities, that's fixed. Uh, but the reason that national residency matching program actually uh, called for market design as as a solution was that we had market failure. So we had unraveling in that market. The the the, the thing that happened was that there were some doctors in their first year of. Uh, in the first year of studies who were very promising, they didn't know what, what they liked. Maybe they wanted to go to heart surgery or I mean, transplantation, whatever. But they were so promising in terms of their talent, hospitals started making them offers in their second year rather than the last year. And then it created a competition, so some other hospitals started making offers, I mean, a month before, a month before. And then there were some doctors who had offers from some hospital to be a kidney transplant in the first year of their studies when they didn't know what they like. And then they accepted the offer because the offers were exploding or they were risk averse. 
So this created this unraveling in the market. We had this market failure. And what I mean, market design offered was that we imposed this rule. Everyone should come to this market at this specific week or two weeks, and then you can freely trade. So the point is that we designed a market institution in which people can freely actually, except for the fact that wages are fixed. <laughs> well, you except for the fact that wages are fixed. I agree. I mean, if, I mean if, that's like a big exception, huh? Exactly. So that's if, if, I mean, if we had control over everything in market design, then we could do uh, many more. Uh, we could move towards efficiency much, much, much easier than uh, the current situation in which, as a market designer, I try to change some things, but eventually you have to accept some things are the constraints, and up to that day, uh, that's, that's, that's what it is. One example is the kidney. So price of kidney in the United States is set to be zero. We can discuss, is it the right price? Probably not, because the supply is much less than the demand. But for me, as the previous PhD student, a research scholar, and future junior faculty, that's a constraint that, I mean, I, I'm sure I can't change it in the next few years or maybe ever. So in that sense, given that constraint, now what is the best we can do? Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm going to talk to you because you've actually done a lot of your research and a lot of work on the kidney exchange as a particular case of market design. And, uh, but I, before we get there, I just want to go back and talk a little bit more about just this whole idea of market design and its limitations and now one of the things that seems to me, and we talked about this, we've talked about this before, we talked about this a little earlier before we got on, on tape, and that is whenever you have an intervention, in this case, let's say the market unraveled, and we try to solve, quote, solve that problem by instituting some, addition, some different structures, in this case, a residency, residency matching program, well, that's not all that's going to happen because now you say, well, geez, now in that world, cartel seems to be a little easier to enforce in that world. Maybe lowering salaries for residents relative to what they would be if we actually competed for yeah. residents. Changing which residents end up where if you can't compete on price. Well, then what the optimal assignment of people to institutions is likely going to look different than when you can compete on price. because. You can still compete in non-price ways. You can still make it more attractive, less attractive in ways that don't have anything to do with the price you charge. Presumably, you can't outlaw competition. So competition is going to occur on those levels. So don't we have to take that into account to say whether we've actually like solved a market failure? Have we created a market failure? I guess that's the question. Uh, we solved the conditional market failure. So in, given that constraint, but I agree in the sense that this, this, wherever you have price control, you should be concerned about corruption and, and many, many, many failures in the market. Well, so, competition is still going to be there, right? People are still going to try yeah. to, some people want to go certain places, some people want to get better residents. Yeah. You can say you can't change prices, yeah, but so, they're so, going to. So one do thing that one thing that uh, we do, not me, I mean the, the designers of that market, uh, doing that environment is that they. So, doctors and hospitals go there. They report their preferences. They do the interviews. It takes months to do that. Eventually, what the, the, they there is a centralized matching mechanism which finds a stable match, which means that 
if you like some doctor more than some other doctor, it is the case that that doctor likes the hospital that they are currently matched to more than you. So it's very hard to actually find blocking coalitions. We have so many papers that show that a stable match is a stable in the sense that you cannot find, I mean, two people or multiple people who can deviate collectively and be better off. In that sense, we without transfers. Without transfers, exactly. So in that sense, we do have we do have that point that I mean, this is the, this is we do have a stable match, but I'm I'm sure I mean some things are going on that that we don't observe. Right. So that's one thing. But I wanna I wanna get back to you and say, even in markets that we do have prices, Google and Apple and Facebook compete on best engineers. We know that sometimes collusions happens. So, For sure. Yeah. So and then uh, even in those markets, you see corruption. So Google and Apple have this unwritten rule that they do not steal engineers from others, or some people think they have. In that sense, I'm not sure if corruption is, a, is an artifact of price control, it is, but it's not only price control. There are so many things that we can't easily do something about. Well, I'm not even sure I would call it corruption. I mean, I would just say it's how you compete, right? You're going to compete yeah. on the mechanisms that are available. I mean, competition is a much more robust concept than pricing. Yeah, but if we have a rule that is passed in the Congress that you cannot collude, then I avoid, I, I assume that I mean, uh, going around that rule is, is, is corruption, so that's my definition. But. Right, but going around a price control imposed by yeah. a collective of uh, buyers is presumably also, not considered yeah. corruption. Certainly wouldn't be against the law to compete for people by saying, well, I'm going to make it more attractive for residents to come to me yeah. than I would otherwise. No, that's, but overall, I agree. I, have, I, I don't have that much information about national residency matching program details, but it's a very good question why prices are controlled. I think that's a political economy. Maybe hospitals uh, have some power that they can control prices. That but I don't know. That might allow, it depends on who gets to choose the rules, it would seem to me. That might allow this system to persist even if it's generating inefficiencies on other dimensions. If they're getting enough of the benefits by preventing that price competition. Of course, they probably compete a lot of that away anyway, yeah. but that, they don't necessarily, back to your earlier point, they don't necessarily see the full equilibrium implications of, of these institutions. Yeah. They say, well, geez, that helps us without realizing, well. That's actually hurting us on the, on the, on the, right. on the, the black side of the market. <laughs> back, back, that's kind of back to your point of simple designs. That's, that's yeah. the example where somebody can't really see through the equilibrium to see what the world would look like absent that. And now I want to get to kidneys because, you know, you, you've, you've written on, you know, design for markets for kidneys in, in a couple of ways. How would we design markets in a world where we don't have prices? And you've also done some research into places where, well, place where prices actually have existed and studied a market where pricing is actually allowed. And, and, and I want to talk to you a little bit about both of those uh, aspects of the, of, the, um, of the market design issue. So uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about kidneys and where, where in, in, in the work you've done there. So in the US, we do have kidney donors, and I think traditionally the kidney donors were family members, was the most common one. My yeah. sister has kidney disease, she needs a kidney, 
unlike most other organs in my body, I have two of them. And I can actually get by with one. So if I'm uh, compatible with my sister in terms of the tissue and other yeah, issues, can, I can donate my, one of my kidneys to my sister and she presumably might be able to live when she otherwise would be on dialysis or maybe even die absent a transplant. And I can continue to live with the kidney I have. Yeah. You can also receive a kidney uh, from a, a deceased donor, someone who had brain death or something, but we don't have enough of them. This That's is, this is this, these are yeah, cadavers from exactly, cadavers, cadavers, dead yeah. bodies. Somebody dies in a motorcycle accident. Exactly. They're an organ donor. One of the things in addition to the other, in that case, you can donate the organs even the ones you have one of. Exactly. Because you're dead. But in kidneys would be coming from there, but you're saying there's not a, there's not a sufficient yes. supply to meet the demand. Yeah, absolutely. There are more than 120,000 people waiting for a cadaver kidney, and we have every year something around 11,000, so the supply is much less than so the demand. The, but that's a stock flow combination. So what's the flow in annually of people who would be added to the list? What would we have to produce on an yeah. annual basis to, to get that supply equal to demand and along. We don't have to do all 120,000 in one year because yeah. what would it take? So it's a hard number to calculate because the incidence of kidney disease is also increasing over time. So it's not a constant flow. We have this yeah. increase. And if we have more kidneys available, then more people who are now on dialysis are going to actually ask for transplant. So it's a supply-demand response, too. So, so that's a very hard number to exactly calculate. This is a, that's a great point, because that's a general point economists love to make. There's not like, a, when you talk about demand, it's not a fixed number. Yeah. It's not like, how many you know, donuts do people demand? Well, it depends on the price, depends on how good they taste, depends on lots of yeah, other exactly. things that there's not just, you know, a hundred million donuts is the right number of donuts to produce. And the same is true with kidneys here. I mean, there are some numbers you can say. If we had 20,000 more, 20, more kidneys per year, we could probably uh, have a much shorter waiting list. Uh, that, that we know. But, but as, as you said, demand is not a constant thing. But if your sister is willing to donate your kidney... But, uh, but roughly you're saying we're producing at a flow of 11 thousand so a year cada cad cadavers. Yes. We have, call it, demand at current prices maybe of 30 per year. Yeah, something So we like have, that. in other words, we're not talking about a small difference no, no, between it's a, it's, that, it's, it's, those it's, two flows. It's by a factor of two or more. Yes. And then we have five to six thousand, uh, these, these numbers are rough, but five to six thousand living donations. And Part of this living donation happens through exchange. So if your sister is willing to donate your kidney, there's a good chance that they can't because if your blood type is B, they are A, they can't donate your kidney or if your antibodies do not match. And the, the, the key part that market designers entered into this market was uh, in designing kidney exchanges. So if your sister is incompatible to you, my sister is incompatible to me, but my sister can donate to you and your sister can donate a kidney to me, now we can have a kidney exchange. And that's actually something uh, which is increasingly uh, becoming popular in the United States and many other so countries in the world. This, so the example would be, well, I have two families, the Murphy family and, uh, and Mohammed's family. Mohammed's family. Yes. And I have, a I have a sister that needs a kidney, you have a sister that needs exactly. a kidney. Turns out, 
I'm compatible for your sister and you're compatible for my sister. So, so we can let's swap. Both our sisters get what we yes. what they need. We're both out the same kidney. We would be out if we donated exactly. it to our sister. Pure gain there relative to a world where my sister's waiting on a list and your sister's waiting on a list. They're both better off. You and I are in the same boat because now we're both down to one kidney. So exactly. nobody objects to that, right? Exactly. Or have there been objections to that? Uh, there have been objections. So it's illegal in Germany, for example. Okay, that's a good question. So now that, that would seem to be one where, again, go back to your earlier point about obviousness. Yeah. This might be one where you, the benefits of allowing that yeah. should, be relati and the, should be relatively easy to explain. So why in Germany is this like not allowed? So that's a, that's a, that's a very good question. So the, the thing that people seem to be against is to, have, is, is to have you donating your kidney for some valuable consideration. But in U.S. in 2007, the Congress passed the law which explicitly said that kidney exchange is not a valuable consideration. It's, I mean, of course it is, but I mean, we know we have, I mean, our guts telling, I mean, we, we know it's fine. So in other words, I didn't sell my kidney so I could buy a bigger TV set. I sold my yeah. kidney so my sister could get a kidney. So yeah, exactly. I, so, didn't, so that's, I didn't want to buy a big screen TV, and so I went out. And yeah. Sold so it's a, it, this is a question that I think is completely understudied in social sciences, why this happens that something as reasonable as this is. We have this many opposition. We have one new proposal. I'm working on a new paper with uh, Mike Chris, who is the surgeon in, Nash, in uh, Alliance for Paired Donation, and Al Roth, in which we are, uh, there are so many, there are, many, there are patients in countries like Philippines or Vietnam or Nigeria who actually have willing donors, but they don't have enough financial resources to, to have a transplant. So the proposal is that we bring these patient donor pairs from those countries to America. Suppose Muhammad's family is in Philippines. We bring that, me and my sister, and then we have a kidney exchange with you and your sister, just exactly as you described. And then the Medicare or the private insurance in the United States is going to pay for the both transplants and post-medical, I mean, post-surgery uh, maintenance therapy costs and so on. Let me understand the hypothetical here. Is are you are you and your sister who are coming from the Philippines compatible? We are either compatible or incompatible. Suppose we are incompatible. Oh, that okay. That one. Yes. Okay. Because, we'll do, let's do both because I yeah. want to talk about both. So suppose we are. Different. Yeah. Suppose we are incompatible, and we we also don't have money to do to do dialysis or transplant. So we come here. We have a kidney exchange with Murphy family, the way that we usually have. The Medicare or the U.S. someone in U.S. is going to. I, I, I mean, that's very important. Who is How the Murphy pay? family? However, the Murphy family is going to pay for this for both so of us. So the Murphy family has an insurance. Who is going to pay for Murphy family? Medicare is going to pay for the for the for the international pair. And the reason that actually this is beneficial for U.S. is that Medicare is already paying for the dialysis of the Murphy, because that's that's how it works in United States. And dialysis is $100,000 per year. Transplant is $120,000. One time. One time. We have some maintenance therapy costs. So this is going to be self-financing. You can write down the model, uh, work with the data, and show that this is, is self-financing. Even this proposal in which we are helping an American family, an international family, it's a huge financial, basically, help. 
this proposal has a lot of opposition. So, so there are many people who think you're buying kidney from someone because they don't have money, which is uh, for me and you probably very uh, strange, but there are, there are oppositions out there that we have to understand. Yeah, I mean, what's funny about it is it were, if he was compatible with his sister, we would definitely allow, we wouldn't object to him donating his kidney, or I guess it's you. You donating your kidney to your sister, we wouldn't object to that, presumably. That seems to have met with approval in most countries, right? That they, most countries allow live yeah. donors. Is that true? Uh, most countries allow, yeah. A live donation is actually allowed in every country. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. So, and, and presumably, if I in the U.S. wanted to pay for yours, we wouldn't object to me paying for you to have your sister, yeah. donate your kidney to your sister. Yeah, exactly. So it's Okay, a, now, and you'd be out of kidney, go back to my earlier point, you'd be out of kidney if you did it without coming to the U.S. I mean, so, but now take the case where you're incompatible, and you wouldn't, absent this transaction, that kidney donation wouldn't occur. Yeah. Is that what generates that somehow now you're giving up a kidney that's going to end up in my sister? That's what's causing the red flag in your mind? What, what, how do you understand the opposition to that? Is there, in your mind, I mean, as yeah. a social scientist saying, this one is a baby step toward maybe where ultimately you might think we want to go, yeah. but yet there seems to be objection. How, what do you... How do you model that? How do you, how yeah, are you sure. thinking about that? So, so, so this opposition can come from two different things. One of them, so this is a specific example. By the way, this paper uh, also has a co-author who is my classmate, Afshin Niksa, uh, who is, the, who is the, uh, an economics uh, grad student. So this proposal has two uh, key issues that people, I think, I understand people. One of them is that they are worried that Morphe family could help some American family in a year if we don't uh, let Morphe family to have a kidney exchange with some so, international. So this is like the usual trade issue. Yeah. That I buy my TV, I, I'm gonna be crass because that's kind of what economists love to do. Yeah. I buy my TV from China rather than buy it from an American producer. That's really essentially what you're saying. This is buy American. That's, that's Exchange a, American. Yeah, that's a perfect. It? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a perfect way to think about it. Or great. I, I haven't thought about this in this way, but that's that's very similar because you could actually decrease the price inside country by I mean keeping this. Yeah, it's this competition from abroad. Exactly. Okay, so this is the you know buy American, exchange American. You should be exchanging yeah. with American, not exchanging. Yeah, with exactly. So one of the one of the criticism that we saw people writing or sending emails was that let's solve the problem at home first. So that was the criticism. The other one is that uh, people are concerned about the, the so-called issue of coercion. So whatever which we think that someone is giving up their kidney or part of their body because of money, even if that's not because of money, or, or even if they die if they don't do that, people are, people are uh, many people are worried about. So your sister maybe doesn't really need a kidney, but uh, we get this, yeah. to, and there's some under the table transaction. Yeah, exactly. And there are also but that some. that kind of fits with. I mean, we, those people aren't so crazy, right? Because that kind of fits with what we talked about before. I mean, once you allow these kinds of transactions, that is, you envision 
this program. This is a great idea because it allows these beneficial transactions that couldn't occur. But doesn't opening up of that environment then allow for some other transactions or facilitate some other transactions that people maybe are suspicious of or don't want to see happen, like an out-and-out -out payment to somebody that's masqueraded. In, a, in other words, this gets back to our point from before, which is, you know, we have, you could have something that looks great on the surface, that this is clearly beneficial, yeah. but I haven't really said when I implement this in the real world, it's not limited to that. It opens the door for other things. Yeah. I really got to think about a second best kind of world in which maybe I've created the ability to have yeah. other, is that, you know, maybe these people's yeah, concerns aren't so crazy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the general equilibrium effect is something that you're, you're talking about. That's definitely true, because in US, it's easy for us to understand whether this person who is going to donate you a kidney, is, is, is he or she really your sister or brother or your spouse? If we bring someone from some other country, it's, it's, it's much harder to identify. Have they been paid inside their country? Have they been exploited? That's, that's definitely something. And also, another general equilibrium effect is that if we solve a very small fraction of the problem in one of those countries using this proposal, then maybe this decreases the incentive of their government or the whole international community to solve their problem in a, in a more fundamental and, I mean, in a more uh, in a better way. So these are all general equilibrium effects that we have to, that we have to, of course, think right. about. Now the other thing I know you've talked about is not just having the two-person trade, but yes. to having like the five-person trade where we find a group of people who can, yeah. maybe we can't pairwise make it work, but we can make it work with a longer chain. And yes. my understanding is that there have been some longer chains actually out there in practice. Yes. So we cannot have longer cycles because uh, in, so in this Morphe family, Mohammed's family example, there are four people involved in this kidney exchange at the same time, so we need four surgery rooms. Right. And because in US you cannot contract on, on kidney, uh, these should happen at the same time. So if we go to three people, so you, you donate to Hansen's, uh, sister and then Hansen, Lars Hansen donates to my sister and I donate to your sister, we need six surgery rooms. Yep. So we cannot have more than three, three cycles. But we, we can have chains. And by chains I mean, I, I mean your sister donates to me uh, and then my sister donates to someone else tomorrow and then someone else's sisters to someone else, but then we have to find you a kidney because you are starting this chain. And the way it works in the US, in the, in the US currently is that we do have a lot of non-directed donors, people who are altruistic donors. They just come to the market. They want to donate their kidney to someone. And they are extremely altruistic people. So the way it works is that one of these altruistic donors come to the market. They donate to your sister. And then you donate to my sister in, in another yeah. day. And then my sister donates to someone else in another day. For this, we don't have to have simultaneous exchanges. Why? Because if the non-directed donor donates to your sister, and then you renege, you say, I'm not going to donate to your kidney, that's not a disaster because I still have my donor here. But if my sister donates to your sister, and then you renege to donate to me, then that's a disaster because I've already lost a kidney which was my sister's right. kidney. That's why these non-directed donors are so helpful. 
uh, I'm sure you can easily see some big benefit of non-directed donors, which is more than that, more than the, the, this benefit that I described, which is that they are solving the problem of double coincidence of once, which, Correct. Is, which is something that we in, in economics are very are much we, more. We usually use money to do that. Exactly. Right? We usually say, well, when I go to the barber to get my hair cut, I don't have to have something that I produced. Yeah. I don't have to teach him economics. I can say, well, I get paid money for teaching other people economics, and I use my money to buy the haircut. Yeah, exactly. You're saying in this kidney market where we have an exchange, it's kidney for kidney. It's, yeah, exactly. It's haircut for economics. That's so, the only so if the chance that, that I can, that my sister can donate a kidney to you is 10%, and the chance that your sister can donate a kidney to me is 10%, the chance that we can have a kidney exchange is 1%, because both of them should happen. So we can, uh, then we can actually think about introducing uh, some kidney okay. money to this market. Now, what if you had cadaver kidneys? Why don't you use cadaver kidneys to set off these kinds of chains? Why can't you say, well, yeah. if I have a 12-man chain that I could set off by doing this, that's a better allocation of a yeah, cadaver definitely. kidney than a dead-end chain, just yeah. somebody with one. I mean, do... Now, is there a constraint on that in the current yes, world? Yes, so, so it's there, there are some federal, so cadaver kidneys are federal property. These kidney exchanges happen within states, and they can't use cadaver kidneys to start chains, which is, I know, so strange, because we can save so many people if we just... Because uh, you, you're saying that, that that altruistic donor kidney is, in some sense, worth a lot more than a exactly. cadaver kidney, even though it might be just as good medically, yeah. because it's more freed in how it's allocated. Yeah. And now, what are the barriers to changing the rules on cadaver kidneys to allow them to be allocated at least somewhat on the basis of so their there ability are, to facilitate yes, these kinds of trades? Yes, there are multiple barriers. Uh, the key one, which I think uh, makes a lot of economic sense, is that if I want to use a cadaver kidney, which is available now, someone dies right now, we want to use a cadaver kidney to run a chain, then the first person who is now in the national waiting yeah. list for cadaver kidneys is going to uh, be unhappy. Yes. So that's the case for suing the federal or, or who, whoever is running the. So we, we don't know, or there are some proposals, I mean, there are some ideas that we can think about, but we don't know a way in which this can be a Pareto improving uh, proposal. Someone is gonna lose, and that person is someone who has been waiting in the waiting list for five years. Okay. So they're gonna be unhappy about this proposal. The other point is that we actually now have a lot of non-directed donors. So the value of one additional non-directed donors is much less. The first non-directed donor is so valuable. The second is so valuable, but less. And once you have, I mean, 50 non-directed donors or 100 non-directed donors or 1,000, then the, their value decreases over time. So uh, we are not that much worried about this, this issue at this point. I was talking to uh, the National Kidney Registries, I mean, uh, chairman, and he was saying that if anything, we have too many non-directed donors at this point. So I don't know about too many. It's hard to see yeah. how that would have negative so, value. But I, yeah. Yeah. all right, Mohammed, this has been absolutely great talking to you about the kidney exchange and, and, and kidneys in general. L let me let me just try to step back a little on the kidney stuff because I do want to make sure we convey why this is so important. And so. Can you give us an idea of the magnitude of the loss that's happened? If we could improve kidney donation, what could we yeah. save in terms of 
lives. I mean, how, how, much, how, how much can we really add value? Just take the U.S., forget the rest of the world for the moment. Uh, to answer your question, I have to look at the rest of the world for a moment, okay. which, is, which is the case of Iran, where we have a market for kidney. Okay. So people, I'm, I'm assuming that the benchmark is that, what if you have a market for kidney? And I've been recently, in the past year, working on the data on, on the Iranian market. We actually got uh, new updated data yesterday, so that's a, that's a pretty exciting data set. What, what's happening in that market is that uh, if we look at the donor side, the demand Let's side... Let's step back. So Iran is one place in the world where we actually sure. have an explicit market for yes, kidneys. Yes, Iran is the, is the only country in the world which has a legal market for kidney that donors and sellers can go. Sellers, I mean, donors can go and sell their kidneys and uh, patients can go and buy a kidney from those sellers. There is a matching mechanism in between, which is basically only a queue waiting list for, for patients. So patients register in this institution as they want to buy a kidney. Donors go and register that they want to sell a kidney because we have an over, because there is always some more demand than supply. It's the case that whenever you go and you want to sell a kidney, they immediately find you someone who is a match. And then the price is fixed. So it's not a market in which you can uh, negotiate on prices that much. But the price is high enough that uh, basically, the waiting time for kidneys is so low. So, I mean, l people maybe don't always think about these things the way economists do. Yeah. So, in a typical market, you know, where we're allocating goods, say houses, there's no queue. I yes. could, even if I'm the last guy to show up in the market, I see a house I want, I can go to that seller, bid more than everybody else, and get yes, that. Yes. And house in prices in that role are doing a lot of things. You know, the higher the price, the more people want to sell their houses, and it also serving to allocate the yeah. kidneys above. To, I mean, allocate the houses to, yeah, the, to houses. the different people who want to buy a house. Now, in Iran, the key feature you're pointing to is more that we're paying donors. And when you pay donors, economists wouldn't be so surprised, you get more donors than when you don't pay donors. Yes. Even if once I get those kidneys, I allocate them just like I do in the U.S., I got a queue and I give the kidney to the highest person in the queue who's compatible. Exactly. So the aspect of having a, quote, market that you're emphasizing is paying donors. Exactly. That is compensating donors monetarily yeah. for providing a kidney to the market even if I'm going to control who gets it. Exactly. So you, you're, you're, you're very articulate. It was, it was the exact description of the market. So there is a waiting list for patients. The supply is more than the supply that you have if you had price equal to zero, because now there are some many more living donors who are willing to donate their kidneys. In US, we talked about these non-directed donors who are willing to donate their kidneys for free. In Iran, because you are paying people, people have uh, incentive to come to this market and sell their kidneys. The rest of the market is very similar to the U.S. in the sense that the person who comes and shops who wants to donate their kidney will be allocated to the first person who is compatible in the waiting list. So that's, that's basically how the market works. Now, the, the, the supply, so the price is not uh, uh, controlled by private negotiations, just like a housing market. The price is regulated at some fixed number. 
The, the current number is uh, 15 million Iranian currency, which is equivalent of a year and a half of minimum wage. I was looking at the data, which basically shows that except for O-blood type patients, which is over demand, so there are so many patients with O-blood type, and O-blood type patients can only receive a kidney from O-donors, uh, except for those people, there is virtually no waiting list for, for patients, so they can immediately find a kidney. In that sense, market is working. You may ask why all people, I mean, cannot find because we don't uh, price different kidneys differently. So we don't pay more for people who donate O kidneys. Exactly. Which, if you had a in a in a in a completely free or I mean completely in an economics model, we predict that O kidneys are going to be more expensive because they have higher demand and fewer supply. But it's not the case in Iran because the price is fixed for all types of kidneys. So in that sense, the market is working. People who want to find a kidney are finding a kidney. The other aspect of the market, which is actually very important to look at, is that if you look at the deceased donation, the cadaver kidneys waiting list, that waiting time is also very, very short because those people who can afford or buy a kidney in the market, they go to the market. Having a living donation, living donor is better than having a cadaver donor. Those people who cannot afford to buy a kidney in the market. Either there are some charities who, who help them, or they can go to this cadaver kidney waiting list. Because many people are not in that waiting list, they bought something in the market. That waiting list is very short, so they can, they can easily find a cadaver kidney. So the dialysis waiting time for these people is very low. Okay, so that's, that's one spillover effect. What about another spillover effect, which is kind of the crowding out story, that is, if I know you can, I can buy a kidney, yeah. donating one for my sister doesn't sound quite as attractive anymore. Do we see evidence that that happens in, in well, Iran completely. as well? Yeah. So if you look at similar countries or United States or any country in the world which does not have a market, you see a lot of living donation. Basically a third of the donations uh, in the market is happening through your families and friends and spouses and so on. In Iran, that's virtually zero. I mean, it's something like 2% of the market. So you, you easily see the crowding out effect, which is not, again, surprising for economists. I mean, if you can buy a kidney in the market or receive a cadaver kidney, why should I donate my kidney to you? But that's, that's definitely the case. That's, the, uh, that's one of the general equilibrium effects. Now, an economist wouldn't even necessarily say that that's inefficient, that you, know, you want the low-cost yeah. supplier supplying. Now, but isn't that part of what makes people upset about this system? That if I'm rich, I now get, I don't have yeah. to step up for my sister that, but if I'm poor, I can't afford to buy a kidney. I have to. I have to, now. That's a small part of it because we don't see actually even within poor people, your sister comes and donates you a kidney because you can find a kidney in the cadaver waiting list. So I was just gonna say that, but that ties into the cadaver issue yeah. because we've now freed up kidneys. But back to your earlier point that these benefits are more subtle now. So one of the reasons why maybe people don't jump on this bandwagon as quickly is some of these benefits are indirect. Some of the benefits of having a market aren't nearly as obvious to people, right? Yeah. They, they, they don't necessarily see the gains. I mean, it's the same reason why people call for price controls in many other situations. Yeah. They say, geez, this is horrible, price gouging, let's call for a price control. They don't really see that, well, if you do that, 
supply is going to change, you're going to get a black market, you get, you know, yeah. war on drugs. There's a zillion examples that are all the same way where it's kind of related to your market design point because how do we make politics more Legal. transparent? Yeah. So more, you know, more... So we understand the equilibrium a little more. Maybe I, that's one of the roles of the economy. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what, what you mean that benefits are. So one of the benefits is clear. So everyone, so there are, I mean, 8,000 people who died in the United States or left the waiting list because they were too sick to have a transplant last year. So we know that if we price the kidney, I mean, I'm not necessarily well, making a case. I'm just saying that well, the benefit I think is clear. I'm sure you I would buy that because there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't dream of donating a kidney at anything close to what you think the price is going to be. So for them, they might say, well, you know, this really isn't going to give us much more supply. And I think one of the things that the reality is, you don't need that much more supply. I don't yeah. need 10% of the population to be willing to donate a kidney. Yeah. I need a really small fraction of people who would say, oh, that extra inducement is enough to get me to, in, to donate yeah. a kidney. And I think that's the part of transparency that's maybe not so obvious. And I, and, I, and, I, and I agree, when I've talked to people about market for kidneys and things like that, people don't really realize the numbers. They don't really realize, hey, we have this big of a shortage at the current equilibrium, this many people are dying. We don't really need that many people to step forward. It's a small number that yeah. we need. Even if you wouldn't dream of doing it, doesn't mean that there yeah. wouldn't be enough people even at a relatively Yeah, exactly. And that's, a not, that's actually one reason that people are very much against the market for kidney because those people who understand that we need a very small portion of the population also understand that those people who are willing to donate their kidney are the poorest of the poor. So that's something that we can think about is it exploitation? Is it coercion? Is it, is it an offer that you can't refuse? Is it going to have a general equilibrium effect on how the government is going to, I mean, design policies? I don't know, but that's actually one of the reasons because we really need something like, as we calculated, uh, some, some simple calculations at the beginning of this, uh, uh, this our discussions, 30,000 people, 20,000 people, it's more than enough to solve the problem. So, so that's one of the reasons that uh, people are against the market for kidney. So, but you're, so you're a market design theorist. You're interested in market design yeah. broadly. You're interested in kidneys partly because it's historical application of market design, but also it sounds to me partly because you think it's an important area. It's a place where economics and market design in particular yeah. can add substantial value to society. Yes. Um, so, and the value is both... Uh, the fact that you have hundreds of thousands of people with kidney failure, and it's going to be more in, the, in everywhere in the world. And the other benefit is that it's a, it's, it's a $50 billion market in terms of costs. That this is, uh, dialysis is the single most expensive program of Medicare. So if we can do anything which decreases that, that cost by a small factor, that's a huge improvement in, 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 in well, that's another fact I think people probably aren't very aware of. They, I think when you say to somebody, I'm going to have more transplants, they say, well, that's a cost increasing. Yeah. That's, a, that's cost increasing because they think of transplant as this extraordinary operation that costs, you know, like you said, it costs $100,000 plus. Yeah. 
they don't think the alternative is somebody's on dialysis year after year, and dialysis itself isn't very cheap. Yeah. Not to mention, it's not the funnest thing in the exactly. world. To it's so painful. Yeah, and it takes a lot of your time. I mean, yeah. as an economist, you might say, even if we could get rid of the pain, it's not an instant procedure. I don't just walk in and a minute later walk yeah, out. I mean, I have to sit there and go through dialysis. And if you go to a dialysis center, you kind of realize... Yeah, and it decreases your productivity. Physically, you won't be as healthy as transplant. So the treatment of choice is definitely transplant. It's much cheaper. It's, you will have a much better life. Uh, the calculations that, again, one of the doctors uh, have recently written a paper is that if we can uh, have, actually his idea was that even if we can have a national kidney exchange system with lots of non-directed donors connecting the cadaver system to this system, the savings, the present value of the savings is going to be more than $100 billion. So in, 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 the, in the, the present value. So that's, that's just a big number because dialysis is so costly. And, and he didn't calculate the fact that these people who are not under dialysis are going to be more productive in the society too. So even without that, the fact that dialysis is $100,000 per year, transplant is much cheaper. It's a once in a, once in a one, I mean, it's a one, you invest once. This is going to be cost efficient. There is no question in the medical community or economic community that transplant is by far, uh, in terms of cost, is by far better than dialysis. The question is, do we want to uh, save that much money and have some people selling their kidneys for, for cash? For cash? Well, well, I got a question for you. you, you you've talked about market design. Is there a corresponding literature that talks about marketing design? That is, sounds like to me a kidney revision to the kidney program is solely in need of a marketing program that would do a better job of saying why these kind of changes are necessary, why yeah. we should be more accepting of this. Is there usefulness of market design ideas to think about guiding not just how you design a market, but marketing? You know, how do we get the message out there better? How do we change yeah. people's... What? It probably doesn't sound like game theory necessarily yeah. would be the part, it's, but what, 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 what disciplines in economics or outside of yeah, economics can we draw, exactly. draw on? It's, it's, for me, it's more of a behavioral economics uh, type of uh, question that you're asking. The way you frame a market for a kidney, you can say we want to design a market, uh, design an environment in which people can go and sell their kidneys. Or you can frame it differently. We, we can say, we want to compensate those people who are donating part of their body to save a fellow citizen. So these are two different ways. So one question that I, that I think is a, is a, is a fair question, to, is, is an interesting question to ask is that we do give uh, prizes to best policeman of the year, policeman of the year. So what if I design a system in which I say I want 100 people to donate their kidneys? And at the end of the, the year, I'm going to give a million dollars to one of them randomly as a prize. Are we fine with that system or, or we are not fine with that system for another reason? Or how do we make this a priority for people? Exactly. Why, how do I get this? I mean, and this, that's why I talking about it as marketing. That is, yeah. how do I get people interested in this is my way to serve society? This is a policy. Exactly. In, in so one thing that we have to think about, we, 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 so in the Iranian market, if you want to 
interview one of the donors about their decision, they want to be anonymous. It's, it's not a respected thing to sell your kidney. I think a successful market design for a kidney market in any country should have this feature that after 50 years, people are proud that they have donated their kidney, or at least they are not ashamed. So this is an act that you are saving someone else's life. The question is why this is, this is a, this is a disrespectful act, or yeah, how so we can actually change people's perception. Let, let me give you an example. Let's, let's take another re related market that's a little more accepted, a little further along, blood donation. So I think people brag about being blood donation when they yeah. don't get paid. Yeah. In fact, they give you a little button that you can say, you know, I donated blood today, right? And you get to wear it around. I know when I've donated blood here in Chicago, they give you a little button that you get to wear and to say you're a blood donor. On the other hand, to go to one of these blood donation clinics where you get paid to donate your blood, I'm not sure people, they want to go out the back door. Yeah. They don't necessarily want to go out the front door. So that seems to be a different attitude that putting money into that transaction. Objectifies something. Objectifies. That's, that's, that's what I mean. Michael Sandel and philosophers use. They say objectification of some moral act. Yeah, on the other hand, we do other things like we give you a tax break if you donate money to charities. And yeah. People still seem to think it's okay that, you know, it, it sort of says, again, it's, there's a lot of subtlety yeah. there. And it seems to me there's a little bit of an analogy to market design here. That is, we, we need yeah. a different theory. We don't just need the game theory, but we need some theory of, of, of what makes things appealing, unappealing, what, what values get attached, not just by the person, but by yeah. everybody else out there. We need kind of a social theory of, of opinion, in some sense, to think yeah, about I, designing I, I, markets for goods like this. And, you know. I, I totally agree, I think. In the case of blood, by the way, uh, one issue of payment is the selection. Who is going to donate blood if you have money involved? Uh, the other point is that I agree that in, in our theory, whatever is that, I don't have a theory, maybe we should write a paper, Kevin, <laughs> on this issue. But uh, one key feature is that blood donation is so, uh, the cost is almost zero compared to bone marrow donation, surrogacy, and then kidney donation, and then so on. So in that sense, uh, whatever theory you develop, develop should, 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 should be able to differentiate between blood donation happening without payment, kidney donation not happening without payment, although both of them are acts of altruism. Yeah, because it's not always that paying people, I guess is what I'm saying, eliminates the positive Yes. Social value associated with. You know, I, I go to be a teacher in the in an inner city school, I still get paid, but people still think of that as like yeah. a you know, hey, you're doing something good for society, teach for America, whatever. We're able to combine yeah. a monetary incentive with a social incentive. Or the other example not is not destroy the social incentive by introducing sure. a monetary incentive. Or the example of uh, policemen or those people who go to the military, they are getting paid, but people respect them and they think of them as heroes. We're able to combine a monetary yeah, reward exactly. without eliminating. Maybe we've diminished, but it's not even clear we've diminished in some of these cases. You know, So for example, I, the military is a great example of that. In the US today, 
I think telling somebody I'm in the military is greater in the volunteer army day than it was in the draft day. Yeah. You know, that it, because it really says I made the sacrifice. And even if I'm getting paid more in the new system, and it's, it's a world in which they have to compete more for people, yeah. we've been able to actually enhance the social reward rather than diminish the social reward by introducing money into the system. And interesting question yes. is how do we bring all those things about? Exactly. That's a, that's We're not a, mercenaries, a, right? The people, when they look at, you can have a very pessimistic view of the all-volunteer, I mean, of the all-volunteer army, that now we're going to regard soldiers as mercenaries, that they're just paid killers. That you know, but nothing can be further from the truth. I think in the U.S. today, where I think the general public has an extremely high view of the military. And if I'm a parent and I tell people, hey, my son is in the Navy, he's in the... That's something I want to brag about. It's something yeah, that exactly. I, I... is a very positive in that world. I, I think I find that interesting because yeah, we haven't yeah. tainted the service element by but we moved from But we moved from a draft system to a voluntary. The question is, what if we had a voluntary zero price and then we moved to a voluntary $100,000 per year? then did we have the same view? I don't know, but I think that's a, that's, a mar that's a market in which we have to learn a lot about how to do the marketing, because that's a perfect example. People are proud to do that. The question is, can we do the same thing for kidney? And that's, that's an open question, so I haven't worked on that. But that's missing in a lot of market design, it seems to me, is we think about market design at a very micro level about how, you know, when you talk about incentive compatibility and dominant strategy yeah. and um, all those concepts, they're all about how individuals behave, less about social behavior. Yeah. And it seems to me that for these problems, the social aspects, it's almost like in combining market design as a approach with kind of social economics, that what determines attitudes yeah. that people have for each other seems to me a really cool area because it's an area that seems very important in many of these market design problems because one of the reasons we've not just thrown it open to an open market is because the social issues are important, right? It's, it's almost like yeah. the very example, school allocation. Well, why don't we just throw it open to unfettered market? Well, because we think there's all these social aspects to it. Kidney donations, social aspects, military service. Yeah. And so to then say, I'm going to do market design without taking the social things into account, well, maybe that would be okay if we were designing the market for donuts, because there's not a whole lot of social issues maybe with donuts. Yeah. But the very goods that we're allocating in these mechanisms maybe goods for which those social aspects are inherently important and maybe need to be incorporated in market design. Yes, so I think uh, I agree with you 80%. Uh, the 20% that I disagree is that the, the fact that we are designing a kidney exchange means that we accepted this social belief that we cannot trade yeah. kidneys. So the repugnance as a constraint is, has been in the market design in the past 15 years. But I agree that we we haven't incorporated those issues into our models and how they actually change the way people react to incentives. These are, it has been mainly from a centralized planner perspective. This is my constraint. Now what is the best I can do? 
we haven't incorporated them into our theories. There is one, I mean, there you haven't incorporated feedback onto the constraints. Exactly. That the constraints themselves, I might have two different market designs that have equally good allocations today, but one is going to help facilitate weakening these constraints moving forward because they generate a very positive view of markets. Yeah versus one that would generate a more negative view of markets that's actually going to then make it more difficult to even continue to do what I'm doing now. And it seems like when it comes to the volunteer army, we've kind of got it, we got maybe happened upon a very positive dynamic that sort of said, we got moved to the volunteer army and then the attitudes actually reinforced the supply increase that we were getting from the volunteer army. Yeah, I, I totally agree. This is a, I don't have much to add to your, <laughs> to your great point, but uh, we, we need to, we, we, the, the takeaway for me is that we understand very little about the social aspects of people behavior, repugnance as a constraint, what makes something repugnant here, not in the other state, or what makes something repugnant for you, not for me. Uh, we, we, need to, we need to think about how to incorporate those into our models. And those are particularly important for me. As I think over the areas where market design is coming in, school choice, you know, the places, those issues about, well, like worried about who's going to get what and the allocation, those seem to be particular areas where those kinds of issues arise. Exactly, those are the, but even in markets like people have been hating taxi system in the U.S. for a long time. Now Uber arrived, is killing the taxi industry in a very efficient way, but the people find surge pricing repugnant. Now the question is, uh, what makes this repugnant? How we can actually tell and show to people that this system is saving you thousands of dollars or probably for average person hundreds of dollars per year. So that's, that's the question that we have to think about, why surge pricing is repugnant for uh, innovation which is actually helping us a lot compared to five years ago. So okay. that's, that's, that's great. We've covered, I mean, we're, we're going to have to do another conversation because sure, we're running yeah. out of time here, but yeah, I'm, I'm we, we should do I'm another learning a lot, one. So. We should do another one. Because I, I, I want to get back to you and ask you about your experience here in Chicago. And, and you know, you, you came here from Stanford. Unfortunate for us, you're going to be going back to Stanford, but while you're here, one, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what your experience in Chicago has been like and how it's maybe different, maybe the same? Uh, you know, just give us an idea of what, what you've been experiencing here in Chicago in our, in our, yeah. in our Young Scholars program. Uh, it's, 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 it's definitely different. Yeah, that's, that's clear. I can't necessarily identify whether the difference fra is from uh, how much of the differences from the fact that I'm moving from a student to someone who is now part of the uh, profession as a junior faculty, and how much is it from uh, the fact that Chicago is very different, but I, I'm pretty sure a big portion of that is from uh, features of Chicago. It's, it has been great for me. It's an intellectually, it's, it's an extremely intense environment. I can't believe. I, I haven't experienced a seminar like Chicago seminars anywhere. <laughs> so it's just like, uh, people are very, uh, people feel completely free to, to ask anything, to criticize anything. I expected to see uh, the fact that the department has so many Nobel Prize winners and famous 
uh, older economists. I expected to see those people dominating the discussions, but actually, if you are even Bob Lucas and say something uh, meaningless, I mean, this, this does not happen a lot, but even if it happens, that's going to be meaningless and everyone criticizes you. And if you are uh, Ben Brooks, my uh, BFI colleague, and say something is smart, that's going to be smart. So I like the fact that there is no, uh, there is no hierarchy of minds in this sense. And for me, the most important benefit of coming to Chicago was that this is a small department, so people interact a lot. So the interdisciplinary interactions has helped me a lot. Uh, one outcome is that the person that I talk to the most and I'm writing a paper with is Rob Scheimer, who is a macroeconomist labor theorist. So I couldn't imagine uh, doing the same thing uh, if, if I wasn't here. That's, that's the main advantage of Chicago, the, the interdisciplinary. You can't define one person to be a theorist or a, or a macroeconomist or something. Everyone talks to everyone. You're expected to be able to converse about a wide range of things here, it seems to me. Uh, yeah, exactly. So You're required to almost, given the size of the department and the fact that it's not that siloed yeah. in terms of different areas. Yes. And it's true that the, the, the so-called Chicago School of Thought, which uh, uh, people say from outside, Gary Becker, Milton Friedman, that thing uh, is not the dominant way of thinking in the Chicago economics these days from my perspective. I mean, I've been here for six months, but still there are, there, are, there are some ways of thinking about free markets, which is different from what I used to uh, talk. So I, I mostly talked to market designers when I was at Stanford, but still that's very different from uh, what I'm seeing here at Chicago. I've learned a lot about inequality, about government, about big economic issues, just over lunches. So the fact that we have lunch every day with, with, with faculties together has been great for me. Uh, in that sense, that's, that's just uh, fantastic. And BFI, by the way, I don't know if you are going to continue the discussion towards BFI, but when people ask me, is BFI a good experience, my answer is that I can't point out to a single, uh, single factor that I wish I had at BFI that I don't. So everything is great. The resources, the faculties, the, the, the interactions, the seminars, everything is great. And, you know, I mean, I think one thing that people don't always recognize about BFI is when you come to Chicago as part of the BFI, your interactions are not with just people at the BFI. You're, you're really at Chicago Economics in terms of acting, yeah. reacting with people in the econ department, the business school, Harris, exactly. the broad community you are in of fact, economists. Yeah, you are, you are actually in the Chicago University of Chicago. I, I talk to uh, anthropologists here too, so, or a doctor who is working on kidney in the hospital. So it's, it's, it's just a great intellectual environment uh, to, be, to be here and BFI provide you with that opportunity. The key difference between University of Chicago and Stanford University is that uh, University of Chicago is not as tech-oriented as Stanford University. In that sense, social scientists are kings of this university. That I, I really like it. So, so, I mean, Stanford also has a great social science program, but it's a different feeling to be here. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess one thing I would say is, as, as one of the people involved in the BFI, I think mean, one of the things is we really encourage people to take that broad approach and kind of interact with a lot of people. It's not like, oh, you're not giving your yeah. time to the BFI. There really is no time to the BFI, right? I mean, I think you've discovered yeah. that since you've been here. There's, 
it's all it's funny it's almost like there's no there there because it's everywhere right i mean it really yeah if you're here and you're participating in economics community more broadly in the intellectual community even more broad than that at the university you're meeting your bfi obligations to me that's what that's what you're here for yeah that's you're here to make the bfi great exactly you, that has been my experience too so our goal is to make a great place for you and you know hopefully be yeah. a place you want to be here in the long term but yeah, I mean, I especially BFI, if I could continue this position for the rest of my life, no teaching and interacting with intellectuals and just enjoying the, the discovery, uh, the fact that somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known is what, what makes me excited to be here. But yeah, I don't know what specific uh, things about BFI we want to talk about, but for me it has been just great. Students here are great. I'm working with two undergraduate and one graduate student, and it's just fun to talk to students. Uh, I consider myself a student, so in that sense. Well, no, no, this is this is great. No, this is this has been really outstanding, and you know, obviously, we've really enjoyed having you here at the BFI, and you know, your your the energy you bring, which I think has been very obvious throughout the the uh, interview we did today. And we're definitely going to have to pick up on it and talk about it more down the road. But thanks again for joining us. And sure. Thank you very much for uh, creating this environment it was at the University of Chicago and Becker Friedman Institute. Well, great. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.